Welcome to Out on a Limb, where traditional finance and the new digital economy converge with a sense of history. My name is Tim Enneking, and this is episode 28. Today is March 21st, 2023, and it is about 2.30 Pacific Standard Time. So there is no shortage of things to talk about on this episode. Absolutely incredible week with starting last week in the U.S. with Silicon, the the continuation of Silicon Valley Bank, uh, moving into uh, the forced merger of uh, Credit Suisse into uh, UBS. And then now it looks like, okay, we've got some risk on taking over again. And and markets are, are popping generally across the board. So we have a number of topics. So let me dive into them fairly quickly. There are six of very, very different links. The first topic is the FOMC meeting announcement tomorrow. As those those of you who have listened to prior episodes know, I predicted 25 bips way back in on February 1st, actually, when the Fed announced its 25 bip instead of my 50 bip uh, increase. And I'm sticking to that. And it's been fascinating to watch, as I pointed out last week, uh, different companies, they start at a different, generally Wall Street investment houses, start at 25, went up to 50, went down to 25. Now a lot of them are down to zero. Uh, I'm going to stick with what I what I started out with. It really goes to the point in the name of this, uh, of this podcast. I go out on a limb, make a prediction, and I'm not going to adjust my prediction every couple of days because the facts have changed. So we all, we have to count on the world throwing up curveballs every once in a while, but as a general rule, if you make a good prediction, those cool, those curveballs will cancel each other out, and you do just you do just fine. Uh, pardon the U.S. baseball analogy, but uh, I'll let those of you who don't know what it is look it up. So that's what I think we're going to see tomorrow. I saw a fascinating phrase uh, last week, and I don't think I was the only one who found it fascinating because I've now seen it a lot of places. But I made a note of it as soon as possible. And that was a hawkish pause versus a dovish hike. Now, when you think about it, an interest rate hawk is someone who wants to raise interest rates. An interest interest rate dove is someone who wants to lower interest rates. So a pause where interest rates aren't raised would generally be dovish, and a hike would generally be hawkish. Actually, not generally, almost always. So the, the concept of a hawkish pause and a dovish hike are both very, very strange and worth speaking a little bit about. Uh, a hawkish pause. In other words, uh, the Fed, Powell, would come out tomorrow and say, okay, we're pausing interest rates, but it's only temporary. We're almost certain to raise in May. He'd never be that direct, but you understand generally what I mean. And we're going to be, we're going to rely on the data, which is what he always says. And, but this, you know, don't count on this. Don't count on this being the end and don't count on interest rates going down anytime soon. There's a pause, and the message is hawkish. Then you have a dovish hike. So Paul would come out and say, okay, we're very reluctantly increasing interest rates 25 basis points uh, because inflation is still a problem. But this is probably the end of the hikes. (coughs) Pardon me. We will stay even for a while and then go down. The Fed is in a very tough position, which is why the, the concepts of hawkish pause and dovish hike have Arisen because on the one hand, you have issues with uh, with banks, with banks liquidity, and because of prior Fed hikes, bank solvency, 
uh, and, and liquidity you can deal with quite easily. The solvency is much tougher. And then you still have the inflation problem. So what you had last week was effectively a massive round of quantitative easing. So put this in a perspective. We had 10 years, basically, of quantitative easing. We've had a little over a year of quantitative tightening. Uh, inflation is still quite high, 5 6%, depending on what metric you want to look at. And now the Fed is quantitatively easing again. How is it doing that? It's, it's giving uh, all the money back to SVB investors, Silicon Valley Bank investors, who even those who are not insured. So it's pumping that money into the general economy when normally it would have been parked in the bank and been in bonds. By any measure, that's quantitative easing. At the same time, the Fed is trying to roll bonds off its balance sheet. I mean, bear in mind that the Fed, as part of the quantitative easing, was massively buying bonds. Many of those were T-bills, U.S. government bonds, so it's a bit of a bit of incestuousness going on there, but also bonds issued by companies. And so what the Fed is trying to do is reduce its balance sheet because it's got a huge balance sheet. Prior to 2008, 2009, the balance sheet was less than $1 trillion. It's now approximately 10 times bigger. By rolling the bonds off, in other words, by letting those bonds mature, the payments are made to the Fed, then, then when the bonds mature, the principal is paid, and the, the balance sheet is reduced as a result, you're, you're really tightening uh, the mon money supply. You're taking more money out of general circulation. There are some people, in fact, who think that the Fed raising interest rates isn't the biggest QT effect, isn't the biggest quantitative uh, measure of quantitative tightening. It's the reduction of the balance sheet. And the balance sheet isn't going down very quickly. The, the Fed is generally given a target of $80 billion, but that would take uh, years to roll off a $9 trillion total balance sheet. So the, what's happening now is some of that is being reversed in with the, uh, the bank. Uh, let's call them semi-bailouts or quasi-bailouts. Um, there's a whole nother, there's a whole nother topic um, of moral hazard here, which I think I will save for uh, another, uh, another podcast, next week's podcast, because it's a fascinating concept and it's all over what the Fed is doing. So I think we will see tomorrow a dovish hike, but not too dovish because inflation is still a problem. So the Fed really is in a tough position because if it tightens too much, it increases, it raises interest rates, it drives down the price of bonds even more. And even though we've had you know, three banks go under, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, Signature, and Silvergate, you have a fourth under a lot of pressure, FRB, and that's the 14th largest commercial bank in the United States. So it's a, it's a fairly large institution. It's actually slightly smaller than, than uh, Silicon Valley Bank. But it, it, it is in a really difficult situation because increasing interest rates, and keep in mind when the Fed increases interest rates, market interest rates don't automatically follow in the same direction and by a like degree. We've seen some interesting exceptions to that over the past couple of months. But as a general rule, interest rates will go up. That will further drive the price of bonds down. That means any bank who purchased bonds in 2021 20, uh, when interest rates were low will see the value of its balance sheet asset, assets further decline 
And by increasing interest rates, therefore, the FOMC could actually make things worse for a lot of banks. At the same time, the FDIC and the Fed itself, especially the San Francisco office, are trying to figure out what to do to not allow banks to go under while simultaneously making it more difficult for them. It is a very, very difficult line that the Fed is trying to walk. But because ultimately inflation affects everyone and bank issues affect fewer people, I think the Fed is going to give a priority to reducing inflation and therefore we'll see a 25 basis point increase and not even all that dovish, uh, that dovish a message. There are a lot of folks that are saying, oh, we're going to see a 100 basis point reduction in interest rates this year. To me, those are the same Cassandras who are saying interest rates are going to go to 6%. It's uh, way too much, way too quick. So again, I'm stuck, sticking to what I said before. I think the interest rates will, will not be decreased until Q1 of next year, which is what I've said in the past. The second point is a crypto point, and that is uh, regarding Bitcoin. In this case, we're not talking crypto, we're really talking Bitcoin. Bitcoin dominance has increased by four percentage points in the last two weeks. To put that into perspective, every, uh, every percentage point, and this is a total market cap of all of crypto, which is now just over a trillion dollars, every percentage point represents $10 billion. So there have been $40 billion that have gone into BTC, either from outside the crypto space or from within the crypto space. I don't remember such a radical increase ever. And I haven't actually gone back and looked at the, the 11 years of, of uh, crypto, or actually no, 15 years of crypto or the 10 years I've been involved in it, but I don't remember anything like this. And so Bitcoin goes up, Ethereum goes up about, or Ether goes up about two-thirds as much, half to two-thirds as much. And many of the, the alts, particularly those outside the top 30, actually drop. I do not remember such a low correlation within the crypto space. So why is this going on? Well, it's obviously related to the, the first issue I mentioned, banking problems. If you are worried about banks, if you think, and if you're a Bitcoin maximalist, you, you think that, oh, you know, fiat is all going to dry up and blow or blow up and fly away tomorrow. But if you have concerns about fiat, and granted you could with banks all over the world having issues, the biggest problems obviously being in the, in the U.S. and especially Switzerland, you may start to lose confidence in fiat. Well, if you lose confidence in fiat, then you also lose confidence in stable coins. Because stable coins like USDT and USDC in the crypto space are backed by fiat. So going into stable coins doesn't accomplish anything if you're concerned about if you're concerned about fiat, which means you have to go into crypto. Now, if you're going into crypto and you're going into it because of for risk averse reasons, you think fiat is risky and you're going to, you want to go into something that's less risky. You're not going to go into some small token or even some of the the larger, quote unquote, blue chip tokens, you're going to go into the biggest, safest cryptocurrency out there, which means you're going to go into BTC. So you see you see tens of billions of dollars not going into crypto so much as going specifically into BTC. And 
As a result, you have BTC now, which is up almost 20% this month in the overall market, is up half of that. And keep in mind, the overall market, if you do a market-weighted average, has right now Bitcoin representing 46% of that total market. So the fact that the market is up 10% while Bitcoin is up 20% shows you that the rest of the market has done almost nothing. Just, just stunning. I've never seen a development like this. And it also tells you that there have to be a lot of fiat investors or non-crypto fanatics that actually are going into Bitcoin because it's a better place to park your money than the U.S. dollar, which is also quite stunning. Uh, and you can see the additional proof of this as, as banks in the U.S. Experienced, experienced more and more problems over the last couple of weeks. Bitcoin just ratcheted up. Within minutes of UBS announcing that its purchase of CS was finalized, so we're talking late Sunday in the, uh, in the U.S., we're talking Sunday afternoon in Switzerland, Bitcoin dropped like a rock. It didn't go very far, but it plunged directly. It went down about 3%. And the only trigger for that, especially on a Sunday, it's nice because it's usually hard to work out sensitivity analyses, what event actually caused this event, you know, event A caused reaction B, because there are a whole bunch of events and there are a whole bunch of reactions. On a weekend, that's not true. And it was funny, the bond desks at like, uh, at Goldman Sachs and other places stayed open the entire weekend. Uh, but what you saw is as soon as the level of concern, the level of perceived risk in the fiat world dropped significantly, which a huge purchase like uh, UBS of, of uh, Credit Suisse, as soon as that's announced, Bitcoin re retreats significantly on a Sunday. Well, we can talk more about, I'll talk more about CS and uh, Credit Suisse and UBS in a second, but it's, uh, the, you can really see how BTC became the haven of havens. Uh, people who were comfortable dealing with cryptocurrency, they left fiat, they left stable coins, they went into BTC. Never seen an event like that before. Now I go back to, to uh, the fiat world, and that is uh, a policy decision. The United States, let's start with some, with some basic numbers. The United States has more than 4,000 banks. The next largest country, strangely enough, is Russia, which has just under 1,000 banks. And I lived in Russia when there was an effort actually to take it from over 2,000 to 1,000 by forcing consolidations and putting some, some banks that were run by uh, some interesting people, let's, let's say, out of business. And after that, you drop to less than uh, two or 300 banks. Now, in terms of branches, the U.S. is in the top third. Luxembourg, curiously, is first. It has 50% more. It's got about 50 branches per 10,000 people. And the United States has about 30. Luxembourg is a bit interesting because it's obviously a place where uh, a lot of banks set up for reasons other than retail customers. So it, it's really uh, an outlier and, and really don't have to consider it. But it's interesting. The U.S. is in the top third, at the bottom of the top third in terms of number of branches, but it has more banks, that is more companies that, that are separate from one another and operate these branches than the next 10 entries of the maximum list combined. So the U.S. has an insane number of banks, and there's really no reason for it. 
So my, uh, my thought here is that, and I would make this an out on a limb prediction, except I think it might be too long for that, but we can, we can, I will note it down and we will record it. And that is the bank structure right now in the United States has five extremely large banks, the two big to fail banks, and then a couple thousand, uh, sorry, a couple hundred regional banks of various sizes, and not many more than 100, but it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's between 100 and 200, depending on what line you want to draw, and then thousands of local banks. But I think what's going to happen is that there's going to be a, uh, the Fed has a policy decision and the Treasury has a policy decision. Does the U.S. need more than 4,000 banks? Secondly, what size bank does the U.S. want? Because what's happening with the too big to fail banks, and they've been declared too big to fail, it's as if FDIC insurance was raised to 100% of all deposits at those banks. And then a whole bunch of other banks that are not too big to fail, which means they can fail, although the Fed bailed out Silicon Valley Bank, and leave them with this $250,000 uh, limit. Now, the, the government, both the executive and legislative branches are thinking about, in the U.S., are thinking about raising that limit. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But if they don't, the bank sector in the U.S. is going to turn into a dumbbell, where you have uh, a huge number of small banks, a thin, this is the bar, the, you know, the, the, the connector of the dumbbell, of regional banks, and then not so much many in number, but huge in terms of assets, some large banks. And the reason that will happen is that local banks have a real advantage. They issue loans more easily. They they're very close by definition to borrowers and lenders. They understand the situation. They're quicker and definitely more flexible. For the large banks, they're too big to fail. They're very secure. They've got branches all over. And then you have the regional banks. And if the regional banks don't, don't have their assets covered or the deposits covered over 250000 what advantage do they really have? What is their USP? What is their unique selling proposition? They're weaker than the big banks. They're not as close to the local environment as the small banks. And they, they run into the, the, the basic purpose. What is our raison d'être? Why do we exist? And the Fed has to decide, and this is a really interesting policy decision that may involve more than the Fed and the Treasury. How many banks does the U.S. need? And what size should they be? Are we going to hollow out the center, if you will, of the banks and get rid of regional banks? Uh, and it's not a trivial issue for the reason I mentioned at first. As interest rates go up, the stress on, on banks, especially regional banks, go down. And I also think of expertise. The large banks, the banks that are too big to fail, have much more expertise, apparently, in risk management and in investing the balance sheet that banks have because of deposits from their customers. The very small banks are super conservative. I haven't seen any analysis of what they do, but I've also not heard of small banks that are threatened with insolvency, not illiquidity, with insolvency because of poor investment decisions. Whereas the regional banks and uh, the, both Silicon Valley Bank and um, FRB, for instance, fall into their signature as a small regional bank. Silvergate is a niche bank, so it's a different item. But why is it that they made such incredibly stupid decisions with what they're doing with their balance sheet? So it may be simply because they're growing from local banks into large banks, haven't gotten there yet, and don't invest significant amounts 
or significant enough amounts in compliance and risk management. So I don't know what the what the Fed wants to do, but to me, the the decision is not just okay. Let's save all banks, but the the question is, what sort of banking structure? What should the banking sector in the United States look like? End of the third point. On to the fourth, and this is uh, perhaps a bit provocative, but Silvergate, SB, SVB, Signature, uh, First Republic Bank, FRB, they're all a bit like Celsius. Uh, Celsius, if you recall, was the the uh, crypto company that went bankrupt because it was promising fixed returns, as I could describe it on the front side, to its clients, to its depositors, and had variable returns on the back side, if you will, that, that it was earning. When Celsius started and grew huge in 2021, this was fabulous. It could make 60% on the back side, it paid 15% on the front side, and was printing money hand over fist. By the time Celsius went bankrupt, as the administrator, the bankruptcy administrator of Celsius has now said, it was effectively a Ponzi scheme. It was taking in new deposits and using it to pay, in my example, the 15% of the old deposits uh, because it could not find more than 50%, a 50, 15% rate of return on the backside, as I'm calling it. Well, Silvergate and the other banks uh, also face some of the same issues because they, have, they had bonds that were paying at 1% or 2%, and that was fine when they were paying no interest to their depositors. But when you have to pay 2 3% interest to your depositors and you're not earning that much, and on top of it, the value of those bonds is plunging because interest rates are moving up at a record pace, you have a real problem. So they all faced a similar problem to Celsius. And it, the, the phrase that popped into my mind was that bankers are people too. And SVB in particular, SVB's management behaved like amateur traders. They had to have seen the fact that the value of their balance sheet was plunging and they didn't do anything about it. They just let it continue. They did not diversify in terms of duration and other things that we talked about briefly last week. So that brings to my last lesson. This has gone on long enough today. I'm going to take the, the fifth topic and move it to next week. So I get to my last uh, last topic, which is perhaps the most important, and that is, what is the lesson that we can gather from all of this? And the lesson is diversification. Uh, very simple, but people don't apply it enough. They apply it to their investments, or they say they apply it to their investments, but it should apply to everything. Uh, I run this family office. I have actually told the beneficiaries of the family office that especially in this day and age when it's not too difficult to get a second passport, you should get a second passport, preferably a European one, because it'll provide a lot of benefits for you and for your children potentially in terms of travel, education, employment, etc. Diversify citizenship. Diversification should apply to everything in your life. For companies, that means diversify bank accounts. It's easy to say now. Diversify investments. Diversify your cash on hand. Don't hold it all in cash. Nowadays, you should put some in T-bills or any number of other things. I'm not going to go into any detail with that. But we should uh, companies should diversify absolutely everything that, that is possible for them to do. For people, the same thing applies. And here I've got a, a specific lesson for, for people who work for a company in which they have stock options. And I've worked for several of exercise stock options, and I made the exact mistake I'm counseling people against making now, which is 
to diversify. If you have stock options, you already work for the company, you're dependent on it for your salary, you're dependent on it for all sorts of things in your life. If you have stock, sell it, buy something else. If you have stock options that you can exercise, exercise them and sell them. If you have tax issues from that, you could do a tax-free exercise. But diversify your life because if you are totally dependent on a single company, you are making a very, very serious mistake. I know a gentleman works at First Republic Bank. I talked to him early last week. He said, oh, I bought $50,000 worth of FRB at 50 bucks. And I didn't give him a lecture. He didn't ask for it. But I thought to myself, you idiot. You work for the company. I know he's got stock options in the company. I know he's got a 401k. So what he does is increase his exposure to the same company. And of course, uh, as of yesterday, I haven't actually looked today, the, uh, the share price was $10. It dropped uh, 80% from the level where he bought it. And he bought it because he thought it had already dropped enough. Today, it's up a little bit. It's up to... Uh, uh, it's up to $13, I think. Oh, no, no, that's um, FR. The, signa, the, sing, the sing, uh, stock exchange symbol for FRB is FRC. And there's actually a funny story behind that because there is a bank in India called FRC. And last week it had to put out a whole slew of uh, clarifications that the FRC symbol did not represent that bank. So it did well today. FRB was up 30%, which moves it to $15. So the gentleman I know at FRB has only lost 70% of his investment. Do not, uh, do not ignore the diversification that's necessary in other aspects of your life besides simple, simply, and it's not exactly simple, but simply investing. Uh, it's a, a lesson that I cannot uh, cannot emphasize enough. So with that, we'll talk about moral hazard and a little bit more about Credit Suisse and UBS next week. So much to talk about. An incredible, um, an incredibly busy week. Maybe actually we'll do an extra, an extra uh, podcast this week before next Tuesday. We'll see. But with that, uh, I will. Uh, I'll invoke the Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times, but not too interesting. Thank you very much and speak soon.